Holy moly, Rob. This is a new segment in Alexa Stop. It's the intro to the intro. I've got a question for you, though, before you say anything. Okay. Have you seen the new edition of Disruption magazine? Oh, funny you should ask. There appeared to be a new inside back cover with two fine podcasting hosts that look strangely familiar. It's a true story because we have a new home. Yes, we do. We are live in partnership with Disruption magazine, available digitally on disruptionhub.com and quarterly in print as well. Do you know what? You might even see us speaking at some of their events later in the year. So this intro to the intro business that we're getting into, that's like, you know, a new feature on the show. Does it feel like a new feature? It feels new, yeah. It definitely feels new. (laughs) Um, And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what's coming up. So we've got some great news stories. We do. We've got a story from my CTO, as always. We've got uh, the hype curve coming up, but we've also got the story of a startup with our guest, Joe Loxton. Yes, we do. And this is perhaps the story less often told of a startup that failed, which I'm really, really looking forward to. Well, I mean, am I wrong? You're a little, well, there's, there's success in the no, story. I, actually, I know a bit about this story. Jim knows it better than I do. And there was some success before the ultimate failure. Look, I think for every... Joe's my friend. I can't <laughs> quite bring myself to say it that bluntly. They, they say for every 50 startups that fail, one succeeds, right? So And we, that a kitten dies. I mean, maybe. Let's hope not. But I, look, I think it's really interesting to unpack kind of the, the highs and lows of startup life. And I'm really looking forward to getting into that later on. This is Alexa Stop. Alexa, stop, stop, stop. A podcast about how technology is changing our lives. With Robert Belgrave and Jim Balls. It's a long time since I've seen Mr. Robert Belgrave, but here I am in Shoreditch in the Alexa Stop studio, ready to record an episode. And it's our first episode with Disruption Magazine. Hello, Jim. Yes, the first episode of season two or episode 17 of the magnificent Alexa Stop podcast brought to you for the first time in collaboration with Disruption Magazine. And there's so much going on, Rob. It's the first time I've seen you since the Beamer ski trip. Yes, the Beamer ski trip with the ensuing plague that followed on. It looked like madness went on. Um, So Hugh from Manifesto went on that trip. He did send me one video of the antics that you lot got up to. I didn't see much skiing. Contrary to popular belief there was actually quite a bit of skiing that took place. Amazing stuff. And then the other big news in, in, in our sort of, you know, metaphorical household is, of course, that your stag do is being planned at the moment, but you know nothing about it. Yes. Yes, that is true. Are you going to... I'm not going to say... I'm not going to no, tell you anything. No, nothing? not at all. No, nothing. Nothing at all? But it might involve a car wash. <laughs> okay. I, still none the wiser. No. Well, maybe we'll talk about that more later. Do you know what we should do? What's we should. That? do the news and i'll do the uh, jingle for the news which is it's the news it's the news oh my gosh it is the news oh it feels good to be back doesn't it we've got some great stories this month week year it's been uh, day day yeah it feels like ages since we recorded although actually it was it was christmas wasn't it our last episode Pete but trainer yeah wow there's been a lot going on let's start with hacking dna have you read about this i have seen this story and just conceptually the idea of hacking dna whether it's human or other not that that's the only categorization of DNA, just scares the life out of me. The thought what you're about to tell me could happen is terrifying. Well, yeah, I guess so. This has had a lot of column inches written about it in the tech press. Uh, Wired had a really great feature on it available on their website if you're interested to read more. But some very, very smart biohackers figured out that you could encode malware, which is a kind of type of computer virus, into a strand of DNA. Like, pretty good malware. It's not like your average, you know, Windows 95 exploit. This is the real deal. And you might ask, well, why on earth would anybody want to do that? But what they worked out is that if you encoded a certain type of malware into DNA and then submitted that DNA for testing to a service such as 23andMe, that obviously I I used on the podcast, or other DNA testing services are, of course, available, you could create a scenario where you could sort of corrupt all of the data that that company might held and sort of almost Trojan horse a DNA testing company by encoding some sort of nasty virus in the DNA itself. Do you remember not long ago, Rob, I sent a poo test away to assess my gut? I do, yes. Do you think How people could, I could edit, the, edit my poo to destroy the poo analysis machine? I mean, I suppose there's probably DNA in poo, isn't there? I'm not an expert on the subject, but uh, it certainly sounds possible. It's like uh, a terrible thing could occur. 
talking about you putting poo in a jar is pretty terrible so maybe we'll move on but we brought it up again uh, two episodes in a row so anyway just an incredible kind of proof of concept maybe a snapshot of the future you know we were talking off mic about well could you modify a human's dna and then send them in for testing to kind of like trash a some sort of futuristic hospitals dna scanning equipment or something and it sounds like you know and then on infect the rest of the network yeah right it's certainly the beginning of a, of a new attack vector as the security community would call it so. it sounds like one of the harder ones to execute though i think so so maybe not to, not too much to worry about just yet but an interesting story nonetheless now i've seen a story albeit you showed it to me of a car with a self-packing boot I mean, it's incredible. That's about the size of it, really, isn't it? But I can't see how we'll spend long on this story, Rob. It's very visual, very visual story. Maybe we'll shove it in the show notes for people. But a dear friend of mine recently told me that he is expecting a baby with his lovely wife. So the conversation turned to the family car purchase that unfortunate moment in somebody's life second-hand ford galaxy where they, yeah yeah some sort of you know discovery sport or something well, terrible when i was a kid i was jealous of my friend that had a renault espace so you know well it won't be an espace i'm afraid because it, the espace did not have the number one feature that he is concerning himself with which is what's known as foot gesture controlled boot because that's really important apparently it's really important you know you've got baby in one arm shopping maybe in the other and if you can't open your boot by waving your foot underneath the rear bumper, then what's the point? Or waving your baby. <laughs> waving something. Anyway, training your dog carefully to run under the bumper to open the boot. But anyway, these smart scientists, inventors, I don't know who came up with it, but the uh, this smart person on Twitter who shared the video is demonstrating this incredible sort of Land Rover looking thing, which has these robot arms, a bit like the sort of arms from a factory, that carefully pick up the luggage adjacent to the rear bumper stow it carefully in the rear compartment also known as the boot and then close the boot or the trunk the trunk yes depending on where you're from so do you know what it's not about foot gesture controlled boots anymore it's all about the self-packing robot arms yeah amazing it's incredible we'll put it in the show notes now you've got to pick a pecker or two is one of jeff bezos's favorite sayings (sighs) god we could have some fun with this so this is probably the biggest story we're going to cover Jeff Bezos of Amazon fame. So this is the gentleman who owns Amazon, arguably the richest man in the world, certainly top three, I would say. Stock market's been a bit iffy recently. Yeah, yeah, give or take a couple of hundred billion. Well, how do we tell the story? Jim, have you ever sent anybody a picture of your penis? I haven't actually sent anyone a picture of my penis, but some of the stories that are referred to in here or some of the pictures that are referred to, uh, to be honest, I've got more offensive things on my public Instagram. (laughs) I mean, I don't doubt that. Well, Mr. Bezos, unfortunately, decided that he would do just that. And the National Enquirer, which is an American news publication, somehow obtained a copy of these uh, dick pics, as they're colloquially known. It does say quoted as dick pics in the article. Anyway, it's a bit of a long story, but the National Enquirer tried to blackmail Jeff Bezos because Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post... And the Washington Post were threatening to publish some less than favourable facts. And I use the word facts carefully because they were actually true facts, as, you know, facts should be, unlike the news would have you That's believe. That's kind of what they are, isn't it? Um, the Washington Post were basically exposing the Enquirer for this slightly dubious kind of political association they had with Trump and the Saudi regime. And in an attempt to kind of gag the story... They, in writing, which kind of makes it more entertaining, tried to blackmail Jeff Bezos, who, unfortunately for them, decided that rather than roll over to their demands, simply just go public with the whole thing and publish in full the written blackmail attempt, which unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how interested you are in seeing pictures of Mr. Bezos naked, meant that they did indeed publish all the photos. They published them. They did, yeah. The and National Enquirer just went out there with it. I think they did, yeah. I'm pretty sure they're available to, to see online. Anyway, the thing that makes this story really quite fantastic is that the boss and owner of the National Enquirer is a man called David Pecker, which, if you're in America... It's amazing. I mean, the headlines write themselves. So that's the news from this month, I think. It's a wonderful set of news. There is a little bit more news still to come, but there's a, th- a few things that I just found particularly exciting about that is that some of the pictures were just Jeff Bezos fully clothed. Yes. You're trying to blackmail me with a picture of myself fully clothed. Yes, although... Probably badly dressed. I mean, he's not a man of taste, but... I think the context for that one was that he had sent it to his mistress, well married, which was the thing they were trying to threaten him with. It did show him with a wedding ring on. Yeah, that's true. Yes. And then one final story this week is talking about Morocco being in the fast lane for solar power. 
yeah, look, this is a, a bit of a drive-by story, but I, I think this sort of development deserves praise. Morocco have launched, I guess is the best way of putting it, the largest concentrated solar farm ever built. It's about 3,000 hectares, so that's 3,500 football fields to make it a bit more tangible for, for our listeners. And that equates to about 760,000 tonnes of carbon emissions that they're reducing the output of every year. So 580 megawatt facility. You know, I think the slow but steady march of renewable energy is fantastic to behold. And uh, I'm and very much part of our South by Southwest talk. So we like to keep up with those stories. Yeah, absolutely. Now, did you know, Rob, that it is the week after Busted's new album was released? No. And it's got lots of 90s throwback this things is, in it. This and one of, their, one of their songs is called... MIA, missing in action, sort of goes, you're MIA, A, 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 like that. And I was thinking that we could make the jingle for the CTO story. It's the story from your CTO, oh, 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 oh. Have you got one? <laughs> I feel like Jim's been missing the microphone for the last, last few it's weeks. Just a question, Robert, just I, a question. I do have a story from my CTO, my magnificent CTO, uh, who many of you have grown to love. Well, uh, seeing as we're covering startups on this episode, I thought I'd talk about the joy that is Kickstarter-funded products. What, when you never see a product and it turns up three years after it's become irrelevant? Right, so you go on a website, right? You with me? Yeah. Yeah. I've and, got something that showed up not long ago. And then, and then you, you see some like really beautiful like marketing video for a, for a product that you think looks great. Rule one. Yeah. Yeah, Dua Lipa did a song about the rules for a good Kickstarter project. <laughs> then, you, then you stick down normally about 100 quid. Is that right? Step one, <laughs> make a good video. <laughs> okay. And then three, four years later, when you've totally forgotten about the product, it arrives on your desk. Well, two of those products arrived on his desk this week. And I'd like wow. to tell you all about them. Good. Are you ready? Product one. Product one. So product one is probably the less exciting of the two, unless you're into your cameras, which is he bought a cable camera which is a very strange thing to want to own. What's a cable camera? You know, like when you watch sport and there's one of those like cameras that sometimes ends up in shot on a cable. Yeah. He's got one of those. How long is the cable that it comes with? I, th- I think you can just put it on any cable. Is it a five meter cable? <laughs> I reckon it might be a bit longer than that. I, look, Could I think- it go across a whole football stadium? I mean, I would hope so. Look, I know why he bought it. I'm slightly poking fun. He bought it because we run this big event called the What I Have 100 every year. And you've never got enough cameras for that. And we've never got enough cameras for that. No, apparently not. Despite live streaming it on Twitch and all the rest of it. But anyway, he wanted it to do like follow cams on a cable because it's all stabilized and professional. And so God knows what we'll do with it. Maybe we'll use it next year. He's talking about rigging it up in our new office to be used in conjunction with Kickstarter product number two which is Segway shoes. So this is a bit more like it. So um, we're in the process at Wahive. A gimbal of the feet. <laughs> yeah. We're in the process at Wahive of moving into a massive new office, sort of 9,000 9, square foot office, so vast, far larger. Are you building a data center? No, is that what you're doing? You're go- is, it, is the tech you want to bring back your own data center? No, no data centers, just lots of space for people and meeting rooms and all that fun stuff. But what we have got is a sort of something that resembles almost a racetrack that kind of runs around the outside. There's this kind of walkway or avenue type design that kind of goes all the way around the office. And our CTO thought, what we really need for this office, which you could walk end-to-end in in about 30 seconds, is some Segway shoes. So there we go. We have a Segway in the manifesto office, which we won in a table tennis tournament because we tried really hard to be the biggest agency cliche as we can. (laughs) But you've now gone one up and you've got, you know, separate legs. Yes, indeed. So please do tune in to Wildhive social media over the coming weeks to watch somebody, no doubt, nearly killing themselves with a cable cam view, perhaps, we'll see, on some Segway shoes. It's going to be rigged in your new office. There's going to be just cables everywhere, and there's going to be some method by which that camera can, like, jump between cables. Let's see. Have you got something from the hype curve? Yes, indeed. So something from the hype curve to enjoy. Our dear friends at Amazon have released a new product, so... Some of you may remember us ranting about AWS DeepLens, which was a machine learning-enabled camera that Amazon announced. $250. Yeah. Great, great. And, and uh, it, it, with a bit of a reference to Silicon Valley, uh, the, the out-of-the-box app was, is it a hot dog or not? Indeed. So the thing that was amazing about this camera was it kind of put like image recognition in the hands of, I guess, bedroom development, right? Like it made it very accessible and low cost to have a play with some of this machine learning technology. Absolutely. Which is the future, as many of you are starting to work out, I'm sure. And AWS have kind of 
raise the stakes again by releasing something called Deep Racer, which is very much from the hype curve. So this combines machine learning and, and something called RL, reinforcement learning. It looks a bit like a large remote control car. What this enables you to do is it pairs up with a number of different parts of the Amazon machine learning sort of toolkit, and you can design these different types of reinforcement learning algorithm to make this car drive essentially around a predefined track or around your office or around your house or whatever it might be and in addition to that they've also created an online league that allows you to put your algorithm to the test in a fully simulated environment against everybody else's so it's quite interesting what they've done they've kind of jumped that barrier a bit that you've got the physical device you can have some fun with for like learning the language and experimenting with it and you know that'd be great for you playing with your kids maybe or in a kind of learning and education context but then equally if you want to get serious about it you can deploy your algorithms into this online league and I think they're planning to have a sort of full-on race series and some some prizes and stuff like that as well so and presumably what this does is it accelerates the development of the product so that they can then make that commercially available for other purposes if Amazon's history is anything to go by one would assume that they're very cleverly crowdsourcing a load of reinforcement learning for autonomous driving, perhaps, or something like that. And maybe one day they'll shut the whole thing down and just be the leaders in that market, as they seem to love doing. Let's estimate the number of startups that are like shedding a tear over announcements from Amazon. Well, bringing it back to the startup vibe that we've got on this episode, you know, the general consensus is whenever Amazon announces a new product, it kills about five startups. So I would imagine this is probably no exception to that rule. Yeah, it's interesting if you're a founder of a startup, how you sort of defend against that. I don't really know that you can. I mean, people always talk about building a moat, right, in the tech world, don't they? And like, what is there about your proposition that's unique? What is there that you're doing that really nobody else can do? And I think in the context of things like machine learning, pick another vertical, right? Like, I just think you're really going to struggle to remain competitive. I think the best a lot of these startups can hope for is that you get acquired rather than replaced by one of the big three incumbents in the market. So, yeah, I mean, there's alternate strategies. I suppose you can look at something someone's doing in the US and just copy their startup and then get bought by them. There's lots of, but but it's also people want to do new stuff, right? And so, you know, I'd still want to encourage that endeavor, even if it ultimately means that, you know, Amazon or Microsoft or someone takes you out of the game. Yeah, and look, this is slightly tangential, but an important talking point is this idea that we are giving all of this insight to a small number of players, which gives them a huge competitive advantage. Now, Google right now is probably the other example of this. And there's this whole thing about, you know, if you imagine like a field of long grass that sort of divided two different places that people wanted to travel between, if you own the field, you would work out what the path was, right? Because the path people walk is the path people want to take. And I think if you think think about like search history and you think about Google and all of this insight they have, and Facebook as well to some degree, all of these huge data platforms have this incredible insight into the path, into what humans want, into what they do, into our intent and our behavior. And that is something that as a startup, you just don't have and there's no you can't buy it you can't force your way into it you certainly can't convince users to give it to you at the sort of scale you would need so particularly with things like machine learning and reinforcement learning where the size of the data set is the thing you need to make the innovation happen you kind of lost before you start so if you have a some sort of deep niche then maybe you've got an opportunity and i've certainly spoken to some people recently that are operating in the sort of pharmaceutical data space right. where they're looking at everyone's visits to hospitals and the doctors and things like that providing the data that becomes the machine learning and becomes the data set for their product and that's through like multiple partnerships with traditional providers where people are going about their normal business but it might be that you know we can walk into somewhere and get a an MRI scan at half the price if we share our data with the provider yeah, look, I think that's definitely the way it's going. And and you know what? There is some regulation starting to happen. So there's a regulation that I, th- I think this has been passed. It's certainly been proposed in India, which is that if you want to be an e-commerce merchant, you have to make a very clear choice between are you going to operate a marketplace or are you going to sell a product? And you're not allowed to do both, right? Which I think is massive like imagine that happening to a business like amazon it would completely change the game like everybody knows if you sell something on amazon marketplace and it's successful they will just start selling it themselves right they it's almost like it seems to be almost programmatic that they just scrape the best sellers from their marketplace vendors and then 
just compete right and take you out so I mean, their technology has been advanced for a very long time so a decade ago now i worked with a project manager who managed the product development at amazon for their technology that monitored everyone else's prices of products yeah and that's like a decade ago and other exactly. sites weren't doing that stuff then so you know what what's my prediction i guess maybe in the future we'll have a clear distinction between owning the railways and owning the trains and maybe regulation's the answer we'll see of course one of the options instead of trains in this world in terms of something that I'd like to bring back, some tech I'd like to bring back, is cars from the 80s. Nice segue there. So yeah, tech I'd like to bring back. There was a fantastic advert that we were discussing before the episode began today from Peugeot of all people. It's not what you'd expect from them, but it looks incredible. It's kind of a bit like an 80s BMW vibe, the styling of the car. Uh, or, you know, a little bit like, you know, when you used to go to the arcade and get into Outrun, which was the Ferrari game. Yeah, it's sort of back to the future meets, I don't know, it's that whole world, isn't it? It's kind of like 80s technology, like the kind of wonderful analog bits, knobs and dials and all of that. Neon lights. What we should probably do is say what it is. It is a concept car uh, and it's an electric concept car that still looks super sporty. The naming of it, a little bit suspect, they've called it the (laughs) E-Legend. The E-Legend. Can you imagine that focus group or that, that, I wonder that team if... just bouncing around the ideas? What should we call it? Well, I designed it and I think I'm a legend. <laughs> Something like that? I don't know. Do you think maybe it works better in French? E-Legend. <laughs> it does work better in French. It does actually, there does we it? Go. I don't know what legend is in French, do you? I do speak a bit of French, but I don't know. I think it might be legend, but I'm not going to say it in a bad accent like you did. Yeah, no. I've Le- probably offended legend. some people. I don't know. Anyway, good job, Peugeot. You... You really made us think you were much cooler than you actually are by mocking up a car you may or may not build in the future. I would want to buy that car. But if you do build it, rest assured, Jim and I and our fantastic guests today would all buy one. Actually, I'd prefer it if you sponsored the show and we just got one. And it's nice to be promoting someone other than Tesla on the podcast for a change. Now, I've heard uh, about a story in Hawaii. Okay, so we're going there, are we? So this was the other piece of tech we'd like to bring back just to round us off. Also relating to age, which is quite interesting. So... In Hawaii, there's proposed change to law, which looks like it might go through. Apparently, it's had the green light in terms of at least being legal for them to pass this, which is that they might ban the sale of cigarettes to everybody under 100 years old. And, you know, once you get to 100, things are getting worse, right? Yeah. The, the global economy's tough. The, the, you know, pensions are not great. You don't get a telegram from the Queen anymore. No, we were just discussing this. Apparently, the telegram from the Queen in the UK at 100 is no more. I did not know that. But you know what? Maybe they could just send you 20 Bensons instead. Yeah, I mean, or, you know, another brand. Yeah, or some sort of cigarette. You could buy as many fags as you like because you're 100 years old. Look, fair play, Hawaii. Apparently, it's a bit of a loophole in in terms of how they have to pass the regulation. But I love the thought that there'll be like one shop on the island that you can still buy cigarettes in. And occasionally some 104-year-old person will wander in. It's a social club where they play dominoes (laughs) and smoke fags. Why not? Should we uh, invite our guest into the studio? I think so. So we're back here in the Alexa Stop studio welcoming Joe to the studio. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Good to have you. Uh, so we're going to go on a journey with you about your startup, which was originally called Breakfast in Bed. Correct. Great name. It is. And, you know, Breakfast in Bed's a good thing, right? Yeah. I think name is a big part of it with a startup as well, so... Yeah, exactly. You started it when you worked at Cancer Research, where we worked together. That's right. Uh, and we're going to go through that journey and uh, everywhere that it took you. So maybe you could kick off by telling us a little bit about where and when you had the idea for the startup. So myself and my co-founder, who is my boyfriend at the time, and I'm pleased to say husband now. Yeah, sorry guys, spoiler alert there. I was living in Kensal Rise, he was living in Notting Hill. When you start dating, you don't really want to go out for breakfast. You want someone to bring you breakfast And you want to lie in bed with a coffee, croissant, you know, almond croissant, preferably. And you want someone to bring it to you. And nothing like that existed. The deliveries of the world, you know, it was the days of the the, the horrible white kangaroo logo, which looked like the Kangol logo on the black sort of box that was sort of homemade. So no no Uber Eats yet, delivery right at the beginning. Delivery were very, I'll say in inverted commas, looking quite homemade. Right. There wasn't anything like that. And I guess really focused on the evening takeaway vibe generally. Exactly, which I'll explain a little bit later why that worked out super well for us. But there wasn't anything out there on the marketplace for us to go out and get breakfast. So we thought, 
be really fun to to do it ourselves and we have one of those mornings or we had one of those mornings where you know you get the ipad out and you start designing a logo because that's the first thing you want to do when you start a company you're like how good is the logo gonna be and then you go you start designing it together and i remember our first logo vividly it was a kind of peach pink and baby blue conveniently like the same color of your jumper now jim and it was it was awful. It was like a circle in a circle that just. Hang on, you're saying my jumper's bed. awful. <laughs> Much like Jim's jumper now. <laughs> <laughs> this was from my nana. You'll have her to deal with. Sorry, nana. And it was a circle in a circle with that old school writing where you know a paint shop pro and it looks like someone's airbrushed the writing. And we were so proud of it. And we're like, we've really got something here. This is a business. <laughs> this is a business. We're in. Then later that day, we looked at the RBKC, so the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, what their rules and regulations were for starting a food business. And for those of you who are thinking of starting a food business in Kensington and Chelsea, it's very low. The bar's set very low. So, you know, we thought, great. What so was the bar? Still looking good. So we've got a logo. Yep. We've got a low regulatory environment in, yep. our, <laughs> in, our, in our location of choice. This is good. I'm, I'm on the journey with you. And luckily, Max's housemates were very good sports. So uh, thank you, Will, and thank you, Eddie. They entertain us every weekend and let us cook bacon butties in their kitchen where they could obviously get some extras if they were only hanging around at the end of the day. And they let us do that every weekend in their flat. So here we are, fairly new relationship, gone from wanting breakfast in bed to making it for half of London. I feel like we've missed a bit. So, so logo, great, I'm with you. Yep. Desire for Almond Croissant, I'm right there making bacon butties so that was your first product was it like any good founder we did some product testing before we started the business so we started asking mainly eddie and will what do you think of this freshly squeezed orange juice and we went all the way up north to nottinghamshire to go and buy a second hand franchino machine which for those of you who don't know is a quite an old school brand of coffee machine making with the real like old school barista style right hooks and knobs and you can make your own milk and things so we went all the way out there brought back this relic and installed it and started making them coffees. So Still all in a shared flat. All in a shared flat. So, you know, I was practicing my lattes and my foamy milk. And guys, does this really taste like a cappuccino or is this more of a, like, a flat white? And those commercial coffee machines use a lot of electricity yeah. as well. <laughs> I dread to think what you're into. Meanwhile, you, you also have to hook them up to Joe wasn't main paying. She, did, she didn't live there. <laughs> yeah, that's a serious <laughs> bit of care. Okay, so, so you're making coffees. You're knocking up bacon butties, uh, maybe pastries going in the oven. Yep, we're practicing hard. Um, And we're meanwhile going out and doing our own product testing. So we went to all the coffee shops in Notting Hill and tried out their pastries thinking... Light and fluffy, yeah, but we can we can totally do better. This bit sounds great. This This part of the project sounds great. You're buying kit and you're eating croissants. And uh, well, sadly for me, this was the time that I discovered I was celiac. But, you know, commitment to the cause... I was still tasting those croissants later, <laughs> later, later that year. Okay. So we did our product testing and Max being the methodical co-founder that he was said, I know what we'll do. We'll start this business. We'll get, we've got our logo, as you say, we've got our product and we've got our, we got a secondhand bike that his sister decided to sell us. So we got our cute little white Vespa and let's trial this in two streets. And if we can get the density we need, thinking really like a businessman. If we can get that density in two streets, we've really got something. Right, so sort of MVP approach. MVP yeah, approach. It's all sounding good so far. A friend of ours worked at Moo, got us some discounted flyers. Fantastic. We were winning at life. Yeah. We really were. Yeah. So what's the investment, total investment at this point, do you reckon? I think £120 for the flyers. Probably all in all product testing, maybe 300 quid. You know, we're doing all right. The logo was designed by our good selves, so... And the Vespa? The Vespa... I'm going to pay for it later. Was we'll that the pay, deal? pay for it coffee later. Machine, Thank you, Emmy. Secondhand on eBay or something. Oh, the coffee machine was expensive. So the coffee <laughs> machine was 475 Okay. Okay, so you're... So call it a couple of grand all in, right? Call it a couple Under of Under two okay. grand at this stage. Exactly. And that includes a few of the almond croissants. Oh, and my in. CBT license. Because, um, you know, I, I had to be able to drive this thing of as course, well. Of course. So thank you, Wood Lane, for passing me because uh, there was no way I was going to pass anywhere else. <laughs> okay. So, that, so now we know... If you want a great regulatory environment for a food business, Kensington and Chelsea is your place. And if you want to ride a motorbike, Wood Lane. Okay. Good. good. We're off. Okay. Are we going to start this, Rob? You're looking at me like you've got an idea for a business that's quite similar already. (laughs) We'll see where this goes. Right. So what happened next? So we started in the two streets and we flyered and we had a couple of weekends of sitting there so excited because, you know, we're starting at seven o'clock in the morning, ending at 12 waiting for the first order to come in and i remember it so well we had our laptops on loud because we had made a few mistakes where we'd 
by accident turn the laptop off, which would tell us that we got an email, which would tell us that so, we got an order. So was it a website? How did I order if I was living in one of those streets at that point? So you text us primarily right. okay. and we had it hooked up to our laptop so we could check how many orders we got. Um, not that we needed it because the first weekend, as you can imagine, was uh, was not looking good. Yeah. It was the second and third weekend where you know we got our first order and that ping came in. And we thought, we're in it. We're, we're winning. Um, one was the lady downstairs who just wanted a grapefruit juice. <laughs> and the that other is delivery. I, mean, I, would, I would love to live next to someone doing this business. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> but okay. the most disappointing thing about that was just walking downstairs and I'd got my Vespa helmet on, ready to drive this thing. Because we also did newspapers, so rolling up the newspapers under my arm thinking, oh, we're only walking downstairs. I haven't even got on this Vespa yet. Okay. Our second customer was a guy called Tim. Thank you very much, Tim, wherever you are in the world. Um, lived a couple of doors down on the same street. And he ordered a little bit more. He ordered a bacon butty and a coffee. Okay. Nice. And we were in. You were in business. We were in business. And that was our first two customers and our first whole £10 worth of business. I'm sorry, Jim. I have to jump in because sometimes you lose the magic of an interview in an audio format and then joy on your face as you're telling us about that first first real order is just palpable. I think the bits that are a joy and a pleasure and the highs of a journey are often not the ones that people people focus perhaps on some end goal that isn't the real joy in the experience. You know, I suppose calling myself a, a founder, you know, I didn't look back at those times and think I'm doing this because I want a repeatable, scalable business in the future. I'm doing yeah. this because... Max what? was, though. Max was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Only if we can get the density, can we carry on? <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I'm doing this because, you know, what an adventure. And as fun as working at Cancer Research UK was, I wasn't flying by the seat in my pants or, or risking things. You know, at, at this point, we hadn't quit our jobs but we realized after three months and we were really getting to good density, you know, getting a lot of orders. One morning we got 35 orders and my brother had to step in to help. Thank you, Chris. Um, and I remember him running down the street after me as I was going to deliver an order saying, you've forgotten the newspaper. And that, that kind of commitment to him wanting our business to, to succeed as well. There's nothing better. Um, there really isn't. So it's sort of, I guess, because you were still targeting the same streets. Yeah. So what, I guess, what happened? Did people start talking to each other? and? People started talking to each other and we actually got our first local press as well. And people were tweeting us and we'd set up a, a Twitter account. People were really interested. I remember there was one weekend where we couldn't make it because we had a wedding. And even though we had discussed at length... Are we really going to not go to our best friend's weddings because, uh, <laughs> just, because breakfast in bed needs us? <laughs> and that one weekend uh, we had to put... tribulations of a startup. Yeah. Exactly. And you have to make that decision and, one, and we decided to close. And people were messaging us on Facebook saying, where are you guys? What, what happened? Looking, happened? We were looking are, forward are to having okay? our breakfast in bed and, and I can't believe you're not here. Wow. So you've got to this point where you've got the density you need on those two streets. Then what? So at this point, we thought, if we're really going to give this a go, we need to quit our jobs and we need to do this properly. Right. That was that big moment. That was that, that moment. Commit, really of, go for it. We could really do something with this. Just before you quit your jobs. Yeah. Let me ask you at this point, and this is slightly unfair, to come all the way back to now in the room. And would you have, with the benefit of hindsight, chosen to keep it how it was? Or oh. do it as something as like a, a fun thing that you do at the side or... I think I'd still go for the same decision that we did. I think we'd, I'd still commit. Okay, cool. Now take us to the journey of giving up your jobs. <laughs> That's fantastic. So we both had three months notice periods. Max was working in the city. And there's nothing more crushing than realising that you've got to wait. And actually, you know, trying to convince my boss at Cancer Research UK, there's really something in this breakfast and bed business <laughs> who was really not interested in, in what we were doing or the fact that I was leaving. Uh, and trying to convince her that I, I really needed to go and crack on with things was tough waiting so we could do that. So we waited our three months and in the end that worked out really well because we needed to go and find a proper premises that was, you know, officially a food premise um, or decked out as one. And we needed to go and find people who could help us because it wasn't just going to be the two of us. So we needed to go and find drivers who could deliver our breakfast for us and hopefully get that you know, extra pair of hands in the kitchen to make, you know, the works butty and things like that. And who was doing most of the cooking at this stage? It was myself and Max. So we're both doing Sharing cooking, it. both doing delivering on the bike. 
at this point where you made this transition into doing it full time, did you raise any money from anywhere? Or how did you finance it at that point? So at that point, um, Max was, you know, very generously stepped in and said, uh, I've, I've got a little bit of cash. I'll, I'll put it behind the business. So um, let's say under 10K, maybe over yeah. five. Somewhere in between there. So yeah. a tiny little angel loan just to kind of get A little going. angel loan, yeah. exactly, just yeah. to kick us, you know, get us started. Cool. And that really paid for the first lease for the year of the, the premises that we that we went to. So yeah. it was kind of an industrial um, an industrial unit that we'd had to kit out and then get RBKC to come and and, uh, and give us the, the thumbs up from a health and safety perspective um, and pay for our first few salaries. And was that still quite a small area then? You're just keeping it to that one borough, you know, I mean, more than two streets by the sounds of it, but still quite exactly. a local area? Yeah, so it was Westbourne Grove, Notting Hill, Kensal Rise, and that was probably about it. So Cool. So you're off and running. Take us on this little bit of the journey then. So you, you're, you've worked your three-month notice. In that time, you're continuing to sort of run the weekends and they're getting busier, presumably. We actually had to stop on the weekends. So we moved out of Max's flat. I moved out of my flat and we both went back to our parents. So, you know, if you think of the highs and lows of startup, you know, you're back to I'm at home, but I'm doing this for the right reasons. And, you know, we need to save cash. That, that's we, why you went back to your parents' houses was entirely to support this, this venture. Exactly. Wow. So how long was it since both of you had been back at your parents and how, how was that? Probably about five or six years for both of us. It was, uh, it was interesting, particularly when you have conversations in the evening about why you're doing this and have you really quit your jobs in the city to, uh, to go and do a breakfast startup? Yeah, that's bittersweet, I imagine, those, those evenings back at home. But you just get taken back to being a kid it's not like you're not like a grown-up properly, are you, when you stay at your parents' house? Yeah. No, and trying to sell the vision is not, not an easy sell. Yeah. You know, this is going to be big. And was that, Well, that was my question is, what, what was that? If, you know, here we are at dinner, you know, I'm your dad. I'm saying, what are you doing? What was that vision? What, were you, what was the pitch? The vision was, this is something that no one else is doing. Um, and we really think it's an unmet need. Um, of course, to my father, who had never had, anything delivered by by post and or by by hand from anyone you know was was a little bit skeptical and servicing the needs of you know potentially quite luxury product in notting hill did that really make him feel better that his daughter was going to do well and this was going to take off i think no was the answer right but they humored you at least <laughs> they humored us yeah and they were and they were good enough to say if you if you really want to give this a go then you can stay then you can stay exactly well, that's nice so how and how long did you live at your parents places for um i'd say we lived there for maybe eight months yeah yeah so a decent chunk of time so take us on this next bit of the journey so you you stopped doing it for a while so what, what tell us about the relaunch of it as a full-time oh, business the relaunch was amazing so we'd got this um this girl who had tried breakfast in bed or heard about us and she was a graphic designer and she said I really like your product. I live on the street next door. I want to help you guys. And so, Kaylee, thank you so much. We, we couldn't have done it without you. She came up with this amazingly cool logo that went with the name Breakfast in Bed. We had to keep the name Breakfast in Bed. Of course. Um, she came up with this mod logo that we could get a sticker and stick on the side of our white Vespa. And it was, it was very cool. And that's the logo I remember, actually. I, I don't remember the first one. Yeah, thank goodness. So tell us about the actual relaunch and, and uh, where the orders started going and how you expanded the areas. So we had to do um, a bit of sort of drumming up business again. So we had to go to the same streets and say, hey, guys, we're back with our new logo, with our new team. So there were two people who joined us. I went and sort of camped out outside a sushi restaurant one evening and uh, tried to speak to some of the drivers and said, do any of you guys want a job that starts at seven in the morning? Um, to which some of them were looking at me very strangely. But one of them um, said, I I'd actually love the extra work and it sounds like a cool business. So he came on board. We got this lovely woman called Jessica who came and helped us in the kitchen, who'd previously worked in food businesses back in America, working on, I'd say, summer camps, serving candy floss and stuff. And so she came on board and we taught her how to make our recipes. We expanded our recipes. so We had even more to offer because when we first started, we had to keep things quite lean. Um, and so we had one bacon butty, a couple of juices. We did serve coffee um, and a newspaper. So 
But this time we were coming back with your crushed avocado pot with feta. We were coming back with an even better, like, bacon butty, um, even more juices and some smoothies. So we expanded our product offering. Yeah. Because we had a bigger kitchen and we could cope with that. We started going to proper suppliers. So we went to the New Covent Garden market at three or four in the morning every week. And we got huge boxes of apples and all the things we needed to create these juices and everything else. So we were set. We had our, our guys to help us. And you're still focusing on Saturday and Sunday. Exactly. So what are you doing Monday to Friday? This is a very good question. You, you wouldn't believe the amount of food. Designed prep. yourself a new job where you yeah. work two days a week. <laughs> uh, no wonder your parents are going, what are you guys doing? Yeah. If, you th- if anyone out there has worked for a food business, you'll know how much prep goes into chopping things up and making sure you're ready for the weekend. So prep started on a Wednesday morning. So our weekends would be Monday, Tuesday, which is very popular with lots of our friends. And, uh, and we, <laughs> we could never make anything on the weekends. Yeah. So weekends were Monday, Tuesday, and we started prepping on Wednesday. And, you know, we had Jessica helping in the kitchen and things kind of took off from there. So I'd say the, the most difficult thing about that moment was drumming up business again and saying to people, hey, we're back. And if you haven't heard of us, this is who we are. So we've got some even better flyers designed. Again, thanks, Moo. And we came back. And where did it go to? Where did you take it to on this part of the journey? This part of the journey was all about growth. So this was getting more and more people to order because we actually had to make a living this time and we had to pay the people who had helped us. So the driver and the woman in the kitchen, you know, they couldn't just be doing this out of charity. So we had to pay them. So this was all about making sure that we could actually cover our costs uh, and what was the most sustainable way to do that. We also had a website. So the difference between this time and last time was it wasn't just a text with, here, I'd like one grapefruit juice, one bacon butty. We actually hacked a a WordPress theme site together um, and people would place their orders through there. So it was a real e-commerce experience. (laughs) Yeah. And then what happened next, I suppose, is the question. Yeah. So you're not still doing it today, obviously. So we're not still doing it today. Because we've advertised this as a failure story, (laughs) which is perhaps a little bit harsh. But Uh, it's true. a, a, A story that perhaps did not come to the glorious end you hoped it would although it does it definitely sounds like you had some success along the way so so what happened how did it how did so it play we out? were we were again sailing one of the highs and but you know you, what you quite rightly mentioned um jim is that this is a two-day a week business where you can earn money and that's not really it for all those who you know you were listening who are kind of keen business enthusiasts or mbas or you know th- that's not really a, a winning business model to only operate two days a week yeah. but to have overheads for the other days of the week so we met some people. Max went out and met another business who was doing residential food deliveries in a chef-made meals to residents in the evening. Right. And we thought, you're doing the evenings and we're doing the weekends. Maybe there's a business that could happen. You know, we could be one business and maybe that would be better. Chefs, kitchen costs, Chef, overheads. kitchen costs, yeah, yeah. exactly. And they were really keen. They were also at the time struggling with their business model and thinking, I'm not sure if this is the business model. Um, I'm not sure if residential chef-made meals is going gonna, is gonna to cut it. Um, and, and then you started to get some of the other competitors in the marketplace who were coming in and deliveries started to ramp up. So, so they weren't sure about their business model. We were unsure about ours. And, you know, we decided um, to merge the businesses together and to change the business model altogether, which might sound crazy, but we thought, well, we've got all the ingredients here and you guys have got chefs, whereas we've been working, you know, with a sort of under-resourced team for a while. And so at this point, would you say it's largely highs? I'd say it's largely highs. You know, the, the promise of someone saying, hey, you know, come, come and merge with us. And, and they are a backed business in terms of investment. And we hadn't had any investment at this point, was presenting real opportunity for us. So you could say at this point, you've effectively almost like done your a first exit in a way and and you've 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 rolled that over into because they've raised finance for what they're doing exactly and you're so they've effectively valued your business i guess more than you've put into it in cash terms exactly at that point and you know when you talk to your friends and, and say or oh, emerging with another business and they're thinking wow you guys must be doing really well and we were thinking well you know, the, the business model isn't quite right, but we're going to see where it goes with this other business. Yeah. It was really exciting. And, and look, all of this is characteristic of, of startup stories, right? Like so many startups don't have good market fit with their first product. They, they you know, 
venture funded startups often spend years innovating and changing their model and trying to find different types of customer and you know there's sometimes whole, it's just how deep are your pockets right and there's a whole sort of exploratory phase so nothing about the story so far sounds really that different to any startup journey i guess so it's it's interesting kind of hearing hearing how it went and although actually it's different to many in the th- sense that it sold a load of product and made some revenue well yeah i guess it was paying yeah. paying yes that's fair it wasn't you know burning money but i think i might be jumping ahead to the punchline here but it's I'm going to guess that the technology innovation of the likes of Deliveroo was a big part of what disrupted the model that you were trying to come up with. Is that fair? Do you know what? It's it, it Actually, I'd love to say that it was because then I think there'd be a better reason for, right. for why. Um, but because our new business model had pivoted towards the lunchtime market space and Deliveroo have never really bothered with that space because either the demand isn't there, people don't want restaurant food at lunch, they want their pret-a-mangers, they want their sandwiches. Sure. They never really posed a threat to us. But the new business model was pivoted towards the lunchtime market and delivering fast. So delivering at a really good price point. Yeah. So no one likes to pay more than five quid for lunch. I know there are many people that do, but if you ask yourself honestly, you wouldn't really want to pay more. And I think it's like nudged up a little bit since when you were doing this, because exactly. I think it's more like eight quid now, Yeah, actually around, certainly in Shoreditch around here. Like, but I still, in my head, I still want to spend a fiver. Yeah. I agree with you, but actually it's quite hard to do and have a nice lunch from a quick place around here. Yeah. Exactly. I think you're going to a cafe if you want to spend five quid and you're either getting a jacket potato or, you know, a, a quite a large sort of doorstop sandwich, aren't you? Okay, so it wasn't Deliveroo that was the downfall. What ultimately led to the demise? So what's the what's the last chapter of this story? Like, how did it, how did it go from there? And how long did it run for, this bit? It ran for another year and a half and we got to 500 orders a day in the Vauxhall Battersea area. Wow. So, so again, another high. Serious, right? It's pretty serious, yeah. and. We had lots more press by this point, lots more customers. You know, we were looking at our NPS score every minute and thinking, this is great. Why isn't, you know, and, and on reflection, you could think, well, and I still meet people who are old customers and they go, God, I love DTAP. It was, you know, it was a really good product and it, it served a purpose. And you're at a run rate of like, I guess, half a million turnover a year or something exactly. at that point. So it's like, That's it's, exactly a, it. it's a noticeable, it's a business. It's a it serious is. business. Yeah. And yeah, so in this journey, you changed name. We changed name. Um, we went for, uh, instead of um, blue and white and the other business had orange, um, we decided to go for kind of a sleek black and white and um, and Eat Up was born. But I think on reflection, if I think about the demise of the food business and why it didn't continue is, you know, the cost of food is going up. It always yeah. has been um, the last couple of years. You know, I, I remember those painful moments thinking, I don't really want to pay more than a pound for a chicken breast. But you know, I know that our market, our target market, really care that it's free range. And that really difficult moment where you're trying to think about it could never be organic because I can't pay £2.50 for an organic chicken breast. So the cost of food was going up. And dare I say it, I don't want to jump on the bandwagon, but Brexit was announced and 99% of our staff were were from Europe um, or from Brazil or from, um, you know, some of the drivers from, from different places all over the world, like Afghanistan. And so it was a really scary time. And I remember the announcement coming in and lots of our chefs were saying, I don't know what's going to happen. Can you help us? And, and we didn't know what was going to happen. Sure. So it's a really difficult time. And I, I feel like without us turning this into a discussion about Brexit, I feel like the, the UK food industry is in a lot of trouble. Um, because the labor force is completely propped up. Um, so it was a really scary time for us. And I think ultimately the final nail on the coffin was knowing that we couldn't sustain another round of investment and take more people's money if we weren't confident that the next round was going to be used to actually propel the business even further forward. The numbers were going up in terms of growth of orders and, and growth of customers, but that price point at £5 wasn't going to be sustainable long term because of the reasons I mentioned. So. And you, you think you'd have to take it to a place that just would have been unpalatable for your customer base? Totally. I think it would have needed to be more around the eight, nine, ten pounds. And that we've had we had so much feedback at the time saying we love you guys because of your price point and it's good quality food, but mm. you know, that's so you, not sustainable. So you felt the business model just couldn't have survived that change. Is that kind of I don't think so at that It's at interesting because I'm sitting here thinking you could have pulled it off, like it would have worked. I mean people like I live in Richmond and there's a queue of delivery drivers outside Itsu every lunchtime selling nine pound rice pots to people, right? Like I visited it, you and spent seven quid on an ice cream. <laughs> that was 
that was because you made some terrible choices that day. But but I, I, maybe I'm deluded. Maybe but I feel like, like Jim says, people go into Pret thinking I'm going to get a sandwich for three quid. And they don't. They spend six, seven, eight pounds. By the time they bought a coffee and a bag of crisps, and a, you know, it adds up. So yeah. I don't know. Could it have worked? Do you think, do you think now looking worked? back? Do you, did you, do you wish worked? you'd tried a week where you just put it up to eight quid? We did try and and increasing the prices and seeing how price sensitive people were. Our yeah. our market was really price sensitive. Right. Orders just fell off, did they? That people were complaining and saying, wow. "We can see you've raised the prices, um, and I don't want to pay that right. for that pot." Um, and don't forget, this was a, a number of years ago. But yeah, people at the time didn't want to pay it, um, and we were also in an underserved area where you know their options were limited. They didn't have a prep around the corner to say, "Well." I can go around the corner and, and yeah. get it here and I'm used to paying that six pounds. They were either bringing in food from home or they were getting it from their canteen or, you know, a, a yeah. corner store around the corner. So tell us about the moment that you knew it was all over. Not being the person who was responsible for looking at the models and looking at the numbers. I remember Max being the one to deal that blow to me and say, this isn't going to work. And my responsibilities in the business beyond looking at product and marketing and looking after the people in the business so recruiting everyone that we that we brought on board I was really kind of the softer touch and um you know I was saying we we've got to find a way to make this work I can't see this business failing and he was saying but we can't and we you know our next option is to take another round of investment which I can't do in good faith if it's not going to work and it was crushing it was really crushing Mm. and you think I'm gonna have to go and get a job and work for other people now and how can I do that so you had to tell the whole team we did you know we told the team we had a an incredible um, woman working for us in marketing and she took it very well and was very understanding but you know lots of our chefs were in tears and when we were in tears and you know it was a really sad moment It, it felt like it, it honestly did, and this isn't no cliche, it felt like not just our business, but their business too. So telling them that it was over was um, was crushing, yeah. And did they think everything was fine because you were just running it all happy and the orders were going up, so the, there was no visible signs of a business not doing what it was meant to be doing? Yeah, what was difficult for them was how busy we were and how many orders we were taking. They didn't understand that. But what we'd said to everyone who walked through the door, um, and I remember every every interview, we had always said to people, this is a startup, it's risky. If you have children, if you have dependencies, I I want you to think really carefully about joining this business, particularly, you know, from the chef's perspective, because, you know, they don't earn a huge amount um, and we couldn't pay them a huge amount. It's not like they're saving loads every month, right? Exactly. There's no fallback for a lot of the people who did work for our business. And a lot of them credit to them they still decided to come and work for us but I do remember some of them thinking well you know two of the guys were from Spain and they said I think we're just going to go back it's um you know it's difficult and um you know a lot of them went to go and work for restaurants which is obviously a little bit more stable but um yeah I think it was difficult to understand at the time and was that the lowest point in this journey there were actually Peppered throughout all the highs, there were many lows. Um, and there were those days where, you know, your NPS scores are really low um, because you'd forgotten to put in the berry and yogurt pot and you'd not delivered on time. So we were very strict on ourselves and we'd said that, you know, any orders placed within the hour were delivered within the hour. Yeah. And I remember cycling across Battersea Bridge, um, you know, working up with real sweat, desperately trying to get this order to this um, this lady who worked for this company. And you you really beat yourself up about it if it doesn't get there in the time that you say it does. And you don't commit to those things as to why you set out and started the business in the first place. So some of the lows were, were really low. And, um, you know, it's customer feedback and someone saying, I'm not going to order from you again. I'm really disappointed. Um, yeah, that's hard. With yeah, the, with that's the really, low moments. really hard. And you take it really badly because it's, it's something Because you care, that, right? Because you care yeah. and because you've put so much into it. Did it put strain on your personal relationship? That's a good question. Um, so, yeah, Max and I were working together and living together. And there were moments where we had arguments about what was going to go on the menu that week. And, well, you know, why can't we do a butternut squash salad? And Max was saying to me, because there's pomegranates in there and they're expensive and I remember having an argument saying but I think it needs pomegranates <laughs> and the chef thinks it needs pomegranates pomegranate gate yeah. oh yeah the joys of menu design right just, exactly yeah. all I would say is I know a few people that have food businesses it's an absolute nightmare 
I don't know. Honestly, as a te- as a tech entrepreneur, like, I just can't imagine. It's way easier to make money doing what we do, for sure. <laughs> I think you're probably right, actually. I mean, I've run a tea room. It was bloody hard work. Yeah, I think people underestimate the struggle that an independent food business is, particularly one that cares about quality and, you know actually is really trying to do the right thing by like food standards and produce and, all and that there's stuff, many right? joys in the process of finding the products and designing all the products and but making it work commercially in a in a world of changing stuff is difficult absolutely and you know i think within the time that we started and the time that we kind of decided to close the business you know people's tastes were changing you know, we already right. started to notice people saying, but I, but I'm, you know, do you do any vegan food on your menu? Um, and we had one vegan who worked for us and doing menu design and making sure the costs were right for that, the vegan food and trying out vegan dishes on the menu. It was really tough, it's particularly for a fast paced lunch market. Yeah. So let's take you um, past the sort of the end of this journey. You're, it, it's closed. And like, what's, what's day one like of, oh, I don't do that anymore? Day one's really difficult, um, and I think trying to pick yourself up and and go and think about working for someone else mentally was uh, was really tough. Um, I went into contracting purely because I couldn't think about going permanent elsewhere. So day one was, what am I going to do? And how Will quickly and- did you need to work financially? Did you need to get out to work? Could you take a little time? Not really. Um, I mean, the business closed and it, you know, as businesses do when they close, they have financial commitments. You have suppliers to sure. pay. You have people's salaries to pay. So of anyone not being paid at the end of the day, um, the founders are the people who aren't going to get paid. And so, yeah, it was it was really difficult. Luckily, both of us have really supportive families and um, we had people living with us so in our, in our flat. So they managed to keep us going because um, they were paying our mortgage, which was great. But yeah, it was really difficult to think about going back into the working world and also thinking about getting a job quite quickly. So, um, but day one of figuring out what you're going to do next, am I going to go and work for another startup? I know I had a couple of interviews with other startups where they were saying, we are making coffee, cold brew coffee, or we're making chocolate. You're thinking, oh God, not this again. (laughs) And you're like, wow. Oh, that sounds familiar. And you try really hard to keep an open mind and think, I think this sounds like a great product and I'm, I'm definitely with you on this journey. But what you're really thinking is what I've learned over the last year, two years is uh, this isn't going to work. And, you know, you try to keep an open mind, but it's hard to so go has back it made you more it. of a cynic? I think it has, particularly with food businesses. Or maybe I, more of a realist. Maybe more of a realist. And we do, you know, occasionally get some people get in touch with us who have started at farmers markets and who are thinking of selling bread or selling their products um, yeah. elsewhere. And they're trying to make them scale and I and you know I, I want to be as sort of supportive and open-minded for those businesses as possible because I think you know us Brits we do have amazing sense of kind of oh this is there's a business in this and I'm going to go out and sell these sort of sandwiches or do this thing but it yeah, has made me a realist definitely. So just I guess perhaps to, to round off I guess would you do it all again? I absolutely would I'd do it all again in a heartbeat there's no better way of finding out who you are and what you're capable of than going and testing yourself and I've never learned so much in the space for a few years than I uh, never would have got that training elsewhere do you think together with Max will do it again at some point an even better question question. Um, Max has vowed and I think this is probably in writing somewhere (laughs) that he will never go into a food business again if you've started a business as an entrepreneur there's always business ideas that come creeping up on you and you think I wasn't going to do that and now I can't stop thinking about this idea and I'm sure that there's someone who wants it and uh, working in product myself, you know, th- there's a bug and if you started a business, then you've got the bug. And, you know, the happy end to this story, I suppose, is that you're both now working technology. <laughs> so, exactly. Which, so, uh, which pays very well and is full of opportunity, as Jim and I can attest to. And you're working on other people's ideas for the time being, going, that's not going to work. <laughs> but, uh, but, Well-funded But when I spot ideas. an opportunity that I think will work, I'll be back. Exactly. Thank you so much for sharing your story so candidly. Jim obviously knows you well. For me, kind of hearing all this stuff for the first time, it was 
lovely to see you kind of go through the emotion of the whole journey in our studio today. So I thank you for your kind of open you. and, and very humble appraisal of the situation that you went through. And, and I'm thrilled that you say you would do it all again because I wasn't sure that was going to be the answer at the end. Jim, what would you add? Yeah, it's, it's a great story. And I'm, I'm sort of like was pleased to sort of hear it stepped through because I knew bits and pieces of it. So yeah, it's good. Any final thoughts? If you've got an idea, you just give it a go because there's there's no better way of finding out. And, you know, if you don't give it a go, you might never know. So um, I would say to all those budding enthusiasts who've got, whether it be a food business or some idea for an app, just give it a go. There we go. That was lovely, wasn't it? That was a great episode. I really enjoyed listening to that story. Yeah, me too. It was nice to tell a story for a change, right? As much as I love interviewing people about their crazy lives and weird and wonderful businesses, just to go on that journey together with a guest was was beautiful. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Uh, so our first episode with Disruption Magazine done. Yeah, one in the bag and two more upcoming. Who have we got next, Jim? It's Mr. Rod Banner. Yes, indeed. So at the end of the month, uh, end of the month of February, we're recording with Rob Banner. We're going to talk about what's wrong with big tech, which I think would be a really interesting debate. Quite a lot is wrong with big tech, in my opinion. So, and you know Rod pretty well. Yeah, pretty well. Rod's a really interesting guy, very well respected in the London kind of agency technology scene. He's been an investor. He's, he's done all kinds of fascinating things. So, Whereas I sat next to him at one dinner once. <laughs> indeed. And I'm going to ask him if he remembers it. Do you remember when we met, Rod? That's going to be one of my questions. He won't won't remember. He won't remember. Look forward to the answer. So yeah, thanks so much for listening and supporting the podcast. If you like what you hear, then please do leave us a review on iTunes. Tell everybody you know about it. Follow us on Twitter, Alexa underscore stop, or at Robert Belgrave, or at Jim Bowes on Twitter as well. And there's something I want to say, actually. I want to introduce a bit of a postbag feature next time. So if you've got something you'd like us to discuss, something you'd like to say to Rob or I, or talk about any of the previous shows, drop us a line on our Twitter, and we'll uh, maybe pull out a few to have a chat about next time yeah sounds great whether it's a crazy news story or you maybe you just want to see a picture of the terrible jumper that we mentioned earlier on this or episode. if you'd like us to recreate pictures of jeff bezos uh, you can send us instructions it's probably time to end okay get us on itunes spotify and all the other places as well as disruptionhub.com <laughs>